Alex Mosad, and welcome to Winner Take All, where we talk about the constant battle to fight back and win against big tech monopolies. We've got a few really good topics for today. We're going to touch on one of our favorite topics on the show, which is China and big tech. Two birds with one stone. We're also going to look at another big tech financier called SoftBank, this one out of Japan. We've got some big news out of the automotive industry with Ford, kind of industry-changing news that I think COVID has really exacerbated and accelerated the timeline for this change to come about into the industry. So let's jump on in. We've talked before about how, you know, China just doesn't like foreign tech companies operating in China. They've used tech protectionism to their advantage extremely successfully. They, you know, there should, there should be, but, but it's not in vogue. You know, you, you couldn't actually publish these things, but there should be case studies, right? At HBS showing how tech protectionism works, that it can, and it has in China. And now you're seeing it in India helped to keep large foreign tech monopolies out to give local tech startups an upper hand and to insulate them from you know larger deeper pockets coming in from foreign competitors and there's a bunch of benefits for the country's interests not just to have more local jobs to protect the users data and have those companies be more respectful of the country's data policies, well, in China, that is really the lack thereof, but you get the point. And then thirdly, is to foster a local VC community. And that's really what you need is you need the startups, then you need the dollars. And if you have a bunch of foreign tech companies operating in your country, and that's where all your volumes are going, you're not going to be able to then get local startup successes, which is then kind of the precursor to get a really strong VC community. China has been able to accomplish both clearly over the past couple of decades, in large part due to tech protectionism. So latest example of tech protectionism uh, at, at work is Airbnb pulling out of China. They blame it on COVID, but this was a long time coming. And it wasn't just because of COVID that Airbnb is playing, right? Airbnb, all things considered, is still doing pretty well despite COVID around the world. But what is it about China, which is why they are leaving China? They aren't leaving, you know, other parts of Southeast Asia, but they're leaving China. So this article from the Financial Times doesn't really touch on it. There's kind of some buried nuggets in this. But look at how much time and commitment Airbnb spent investing in China. They haven't broken out how much money they've invested in China. That wouldn't really be a good PR move by them. But for example, the co-founder, ever since Nathan, the co-founder of Airbnb, took over Airbnb's China business, he's been making monthly trips. Monthly trips to China. You know how disruptive that is to your personal schedule? You know how much time you need to to dedicate something to say, I'm going to go to China once a month. That is not easy, okay? So lots of human resources from top management and one of the co-founders going to China. Then you've got other examples here. The company 
uh, rebranded itself. In 2017, Airbnb changed its name in an effort to compete with homegrown operators such as Tujia and Xiaozu. What's also not mentioned in that paragraph, but we actually had the co-founder of C-Trip. We had Fritz Demopoulos on the show, I think pre-COVID. Um, and he is the co he founded Qnar, which was then acquired and kind of merged into what is now C-Trip. C-Trip is basically like Expedia or booking.com of China and other parts of Southeast Asia. If you're interested in this, go, go check out our interview with the co-founder of the thing that is kicking Airbnb's ass in China. Airbnb is investing money, people, uh, changing their brand. They still were never able to get close to the localized Chinese competitors. So look at this. By 2020, so pre-COVID, Airbnb had 150,000 properties in China, compared with 1.2 million from the market leader Tujia. Huh. Why would that be? Why could Airbnb, despite changing its name in 2017, dedicating all this time and energy, and re why is it that Airbnb never even had a fifth of the properties that the leader had in China? Why do you think that is? Maybe it's because the government <laughs> didn't want Airbnb to be successful. Riddle me that. And actually, there are nuggets, little little breadcrumbs in this article um, that would show that. So Vivian Wu, a former Airbnb host in Beijing, in Beijing, said she stopped having guests from Airbnb after local authorities stepped up scrutiny of the platform. They wanted guests to report in to the police. Police also called to tell me it was illegal. Hmm. Interesting. Do you think the police were harassing the owners of uh, Tujia or C-Trip or um, Xiaoju? I'm going to guess no. Or I'm going to guess way less than Airbnb scrutiny. And then you say, well, how would the Chinese government know who the property owners are on Airbnb, right? Like that's been the thing in New York City. New York City also would have loved to send cops to your door if you were on Airbnb, but they really struggled to figure out who was on the platform. And Airbnb was able to hide a lot of that and prevent New York City from actually getting that information. China, different story, right? Oh yeah, there's this thing called the Chinese government will get all your data and if you don't, you're gonna be thrown in jail. Yeah, that thing. In 2020, the company's then chief trust officer, Sean Joyce, a former FBI deputy director, resigned six months into his role over concerns about data sharing. Airbnb's presence in China had also been a source of controversy. Hmm. You think uh, Sean Joyce went in there and said, so... Um, we're giving everything to the Chinese government. And they said, yeah, what else are we going to do? You're just not going to win there. You're just not going to win. Um, and if you win, it's because your business is too small or too insignificant to the CCP that they just don't care. 
But the moment you actually do show any sign of material success or growth or you're done, like you're done. That's the scariest thing about Tesla being in China, uh, which we've also talked about on the show. General Spaulding, former Brigadier General uh, on the show, uh, talking about his first book called Stealth War. We talked exactly about this, this same concern. You know, what the article should read is Airbnb gives up on China because China doesn't like U.S. tech companies. The other Airbnb competitors in China are still operating. They didn't shut down because China has a zero COVID policy, which crushes tourism. No, guarantee you, they're still in operation. But this was the final nail in the coffin for Airbnb. Um, probably, net-net, a good thing. Airbnb shouldn't bother focusing there. What's probably more bizarre is that with all the cost cutting and all the things that Airbnb did to tighten its belt, which, which was badly needed, by the way, it still kept Airbnb China. Oh, sorry, sorry, sorry. It's not called Airbnb uh, in China. It's, it's now called IBing, whatever that is. Um, they, they still kept IBing going all the way until May of 2022. Did you take a hint? Uh, yikes. Wow. All these U.S. CEOs want, oh, look at, look at the pot of gold in China. It's not a pot. Of, it's, it's a trap. The fall from grace that is every single large Chinese tech company has been brought about by who? Man, I'm just a broken record so far on today's episode. <laughs> the Chinese government. Yes. Right again, gang. Alibaba trading at $93 a share. This is down from a peak of $310 a share in October of 2020. We've got uh, Tencent at $45 a share, down from a peak, a very brief peak of roughly $100 a share in February of 2021. And we've covered this topic many times. Now, here's the difference. Now, China pledges support to tech companies. Hmm. Beijing's top economic official holds meetings with executives and industry experts. The vice premier and President Xi's closest economic advisor said China must support the platform economy and sustain the healthy development of the private economy. This guy's talking about platforms. Interesting. Our book was translated into Mandarin. We did win a bilingual. Uh, award in China, one of the scariest things I've ever done. Uh, going there and listening to that presentation by the top government economic officials in Beijing. Go check out. I don't know if we have a video on that, but I've talked about that in other episodes, but woof, not doing that again. He said China should better balance the relationship between the government and the market and support digital companies to list on domestic and foreign exchanges. That is quite the change in tone. Still have a long way to go uh, to make up for all the ground that they've lost. Since the government really turned on them, it was the fall of 2020. It was really when Jack Ma mouthed off and he didn't really even mouth off that much. He just like very lightly said that the regulators were slowing growth and that was enough to to really then set this into motion. And then Didi went ahead with the IPO even after the Chinese government said not to go ahead with the IPO. And that really was the last straw, I think, for the CCP. So coming up on a year, I would say, 
a, maybe a year to 18 months, somewhere in that time frame, where the CCP has kept up um, a variety of initiatives to thwart and show really just their Chinese tech companies who's boss. They have made it abundantly clear <clears throat> the CCP is boss. Uh, their stock prices have tanked. Many CEOs have had to leave the company. Pinduoduo founder Colin Huang left the company in uh, March of 2021. ByteDance founder Zhang Yiming stepped down in um, November. And that was after, in May of 2021, he stepped down as CEO. So he went from CEO to chairman and then you know, chairman on, on out. You've basically seen a turning over of these founder CEOs. And maybe that's what it was. You know, the, the CCP didn't like these founder CEOs because these founder CEOs, A, are obscenely wealthy. Their egos are pretty big because they're all mega, mega billionaires. Um, and they had the audacity, not alone think, but actually utter negative words about the CCP. And that is just abhorrent. And they need to go where? Um, re-education camp. I've been saying Jack Ma went to um, re-education re camp in October of uh, 2020. So I was pretty close to the truth. I heard from a source that he, he maybe didn't go to a re-education camp, but he was put on house arrest, basically, for six weeks. And, uh, you know, they would send people to his apartment and, um, can, you know, make sure he knew uh, what he could and could not say and, you know, condition him. What that means, I don't even want to know, but... You don't want to go through it. I'll tell you that much. This guy's like one of the richest people in Asia, in the world. They locked him down. You said, no, nah, Jack, you're not going anywhere. You're staying here and we're going to send people to your house and they're going to tell you how it goes. That is some scary stuff. Why would you want to go and operate a business? Okay. If you are from China and what are you going to do? I'm not, right? Like, of course. You want to try and make a living? You want to try and be successful? You're stuck. You're going to make your business in China. Okay, I get it. But if you're Airbnb, why do you try and go to China? Like, and then you still stay there. You changed your name in 2017. They're harassing all your owners. You give all your owners information, data to the government. <clears throat> and then surprise, surprise, they harass all your owners. And you know they're not doing the same thing to the Chinese-owned competitors. But no, you stay. And, you, and even despite all the cutbacks you did with COVID, you still keep staying there. China's not changing, gang. China is not changing. We've tried for decades. It didn't work. Let's move on. This actually is a little bit older news, but I actually met one of these guys recently. And so I actually didn't even know this, I, I, but I met him and I started talking to him and I looked it up and I said, oh, wow, this is really interesting. So let's start back in April, April of 2020. SoftBank's best performing uh, market and region was Latin America. 
And I didn't even realize this happened until talking to one of these guys. They left. <laughs> they, they left. They're doing their own fund. Top SoftBank LATAM partners leave firm to start their own. They left and they took a bunch of the team from SoftBank and are doing their own thing. And here's where it gets even weirder. The duo's departure, these two partners, comes just a week after SoftBank announced it would spin out its Latin American early stage practice into independent firm Upload Ventures. The new entity saw managing partners Rodrigo and Marco, I didn't meet these guys, who were hired by SoftBank in 2021, leave to run the operation on their own. Yeah, no, there's just all kinds of issues happening. So, so that's kind of bizarre. On top of that, SoftBank COO Marcelo Clore, uh, Marcelo used to run Sprint. Then he went and kind of handled the, the WeWork debacle. Um, he's kind of like Massa's fixer-upper. They're also saying that he led the charge. He's Bolivian, led the charge on SoftBank's efforts in Latin America, left the firm uh, earlier in 2022 over a compensation dispute. So you now have the two leading partners at SoftBank's best performing unit in Latin America leaving and doing their own thing. You've got the guy, COO, of SoftBank and, you know, from Bolivia, obviously helping to lead a lot of the stuff and get that going in Latin America. He left. Then you've got like early stage investing practice spinning out into its own thing so it can go attract capital on its own. That getting spun out. It's just chaos. This is their best performing unit. So anyway, I was meeting this guy. I was like, whoa. I mean, I knew LATAM was their best performing unit. But then the fact that, you know, you know, these guys left and then dude did their own thing. Okay, that was news. Then I started looking into this and I said, whoa. And Marcelo left. And now they're spinning out this thing into Upstart and all kinds of bad. A month later, SoftBank posted a $27 billion loss on basically because their tech investments you know have have taken a nosedive given the market environment and um they're a public company if they have to report they have to kind of do mark to market so they had to report their uh financials end of march in 2020 they reported their financials in early to mid may for the year ending in march but what you have to understand is April and May got progressively worse than where tech valuations were in March, right? The bleeding didn't stop. It kept going. Some would say it's still got more to go and it's still going today. So this $27 billion is actually low. So I'm sure what happened was, you know, these partners and these executives inside of the firm can see this thing unraveling. And if, you know, if it's 27 billion in March, yikes, I don't even want to know what it is now. And then people leave. And then it makes more sense. And then you look at this LATAM thing. You say, oh, huh. this is why everyone's leaving. They can see this coming. So let's go back to the U.S. We've talked, I, we, we've done a video where talking about me flipping a car. 
and making money. I bought an extra, I bought two new cars. I bought an extra new car um, of the same model and bought it, paid sales tax on it and still made 10% profit in like two weeks on the car. Crazy. Not supposed to happen. A lot of car dealers have been putting a markup on the MSRP. And that's made a lot of car OEMs, that means manufacturers, really grumpy. They don't want their dealers doing that, but they don't necessarily have control. They can punish the dealers who put a markup by restricting future inventory that they'll provide to those dealers, right? So they can not give them the coolest cars and they can hold back special releases and limited runs and like basically deprioritize their volumes. They, they actually, the, you know, the car brand, the, the OEM, the manufacturer doesn't actually control the pricing that the dealer is selling the car for. In that sense, car manufacturers have kind of been like somewhat of a wholesaler. Um, but, you know, the car dealers don't really make their money in the U.S. at least selling new cars. You know, really they make their money on um, <clears throat> the maintenance and the servicing and all that stuff. Anyway, the big news is that the CEO of Ford, Jim Farley, said point blank, he wants to sell their EVs, their electric vehicles, only online and cut out the, his dealer network. Ford thinks its distribution model costs $2,000 more per car than Tesla's. Right? If you, if you think back, why do you have dealerships, right? That is a function of the pre-internet era. <clears throat> hey, you know, when you wanted to buy a car in the old days, you wanted to go see it. You wanted to go see the different specs, right? Um, you could you could see it in a magazine, but you know you want to go see it. You want to go to a dealer, and uh, the dealer would someone needs to pay for that inventory, hold it on a lot, showcase it, give you a test drive, maybe <clears throat> all that kind of stuff, right? So. The role of dealers has drastically changed in the U.S. It's starting to change more slowly internationally in other markets, but the U.S. has really been at the forefront of this. And um, that's where you've seen now, you know, your modern dealership makes, again, in the U.S., makes most of their money, their margin on the maintenance and the servicing of the car. And then maybe used cars, but that's very variable. Ford coming out and saying, hey, we want to cut out our dealers and sell direct is such a big deal. I don't, it's, it's hard to overstate it. If you remember back to Tesla, it was the big car manufacturers who were complaining because there are certain states that actually have laws. Uh, I think like Connecticut is, might be one of those because I remember a, a Tesla showroom having to shut down saying that you have to sell cars through a dealership model. So. Tesla's run into a lot of friction and to, to sell cars basically directly on a website, have sh selective showrooms and malls and that kind of stuff. Car manufacturers, the car dealers, and then 
their lobbyists and the government officials that get money from the car, traditional car industry have all been adamant that no, they cannot do that. That's very inappropriate. But oof, this is a this is a big deal. We've got to go to non-negotiated price. We've got to go to 100% online. There's no inventory at dealerships. It goes directly to the customer. And 100% remote pickup and delivery. Wow. By the way, we called this. We called this. Kirk, where's that video? We called this. We said that these dealers taking advantage of consumers. You heard rumblings from the car manufacturers saying, don't do that. Don't put markups on. And they did it anyway. We called this. We said this was going to happen. We said this is only going to give more ammunition and more firepower to accelerate car manufacturers wanting to cut out their dealers. They want to centralize things. They want to retain the customer relationship um, after the point of After the point of sale of the car, they want to have a closed loop. That's what Tesla's done. You also have to understand on these EVs, there's just less moving parts. So there's less mechanical issues, which means less parts replacement, less servicing costs, less less maintenance costs, et cetera. So it's a very different business model in general when you go to EV. But on top of that, if you get these big OEMs to also at the same time, use this shift to EV to do away with the traditional dealer distribution model. Wow, this is honestly earth-shattering stuff in the automotive industry. I honestly haven't seen enough coverage of this. You know, if you go to CNBC's uh, transportation section, this this news just came out yesterday. It's not even on the on the you know first uh, fold here. Talk about GM's uh, Chevy Bolt stuff. It's in the bottom left corner. Ford CEO expects industry consolidation as costs of EV transition rise. Doesn't even mention it. And then in that article, buried in the bottom of the article, do they mention, oh yeah, by the way, CEO of Ford said he wants to cut out all of his dealerships from selling EVs. What? Industry consolidation. There's already only like, Five families that control all the car companies in the entire world. Your top five players, over half of them, top six players, over half of them, family-owned. Basically a family-owned industry. It's crazy. It's the craziest thing. You wouldn't actually think about it that way, but yeah. Thanks for watching. I hope you tolerated my voice. We will talk to you again soon once my voice is back.